What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Jack Settlement. Jack is the founder of Snapback Sports, a media platform that started on Snapchat, but has more than 1 million followers today. Jack and I talk about the changing media landscape, the creator economy, why Mark Cuban owns a meme account, and a new brand that he is launching today. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jack, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe. J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy, the easiest and best way to play fantasy sports. Join a league and draft a team in minutes. They make it that easy, and yes, that simple. But if you'd like to spice things up, try their new Pick'em game. Just pick over or under on your favorite or least favorite player stats, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile app. Just pick between two and five players, and you can take home some cold, hard cash. Go to underdogfantasy.com and use code POMP. That's P-O-M-P, POMP, and get your first deposit doubled by Underdog today. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs POMP Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of POMP Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I'm here with Jack Settlement today. Jack, how are you? I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm great, man. I'm pumped to talk to you. I feel like we've certainly talked a few times, but I'm excited to learn more about you and your business and how you got started and all this stuff. I want to preface it with, you have a big announcement coming at the end of the podcast, People should hang on for that. But I want to start with your business in general. You run one of the most fascinating businesses, I think, in sports media today. You have a large audience. I think you started on Snapchat, but I want you to just tell us in your own words, like, what exactly is your business? What do you do on a day-to-day basis? And how has it evolved over time, I guess? Totally. Snapback Sports, I started when I was a senior at UT Austin, so a little over four, four and a half years ago. And I actually was in e-com before that. Me and my roommate had spun up a phone case business and we were selling everything through social media. And something I know you appreciate was 
I'm paying all these influencers and all these social media accounts. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I should just own the audience and build. So I ditched that completely. And when I was kind of navigating the landscape, I thought House of Highlights was inspirational on Instagram. And there were a lot of great accounts on Twitter. And I was like, let's go to Snapchat. And so this is before Instagram stories were really even a thing. And vertical content for sports is awesome. I mean, you see it on TikTok now, obviously Instagram Reels too. So Snap was actually first. And being at UT, I had access to all the men's football and basketball games, all the college sports there, and then was super close to Dallas, Houston, San Antonio. So could give a really good insight to like in in person. And one of our biggest metrics is 90% of our audience has never left their state to see a sporting event. So I've been privileged to go around Super Bowl this year, etc. But a lot of people, they want to know what it's like. Anyone can watch a game on TV, but what's it like actually in the stadium? What's the atmosphere? What's the food like? So we started on Snap. We dove in. We became the biggest sports Snapchat account. And then, you know, what's next? We did the podcast. We've got YouTube, TikTok, all that good stuff. But Snap was definitely our main pillar, which I think was a little differentiated the most. Yeah, I love that. And let's just clarify real quick, like how did it start, right? Like you're obviously posting on Snapchat, but are you actually, you're going to the games and you're giving people like a live view or are you doing like what I'll call more opinion stuff, a Stephen A or something like that? It's a combination of three things. So snapback experiences, that's when I would go to games, showcase, you know, from start to finish. We've also just got our time when we're offline or not at games. And that's a mix of sports culture, it's statistics, it's, you know, all the things that are going on on the field and off the field as well. And then the final thing that I feel very passionate about was I looked at the sports media landscape and everyone, ESPN, Bleacher, all these great publications, they're unbiased. And I'm like, in sports, we're the most biased people in the world. Like my team's the best, your team's the worst. So everyone who follows Snapback knows I'm a Ravens fan, knows I'm a Knicks fan, knows that I went to UT. And so when Texas is back, right, like today we rank top six in ESPN's FBI. When we lose week two to Bama, that's actually when we'll receive our most engagement. And so that's a key differentiator for us is like be upfront about our biases. And you've kind of seen that around the industry start to evolve. I was just going to say, I feel like that's become a trend more recently, but I couldn't agree more because when you think about it, to your point, everyone's biased, right? And I think most people would admit that they would rather just know what your bias is. And then right. they don't have to figure it out. They don't have to guess. They don't have to assume that you're into something else or you're hiding something. So I totally agree with that. And I think that we're seeing that take shape everywhere, not even in sports, not only in sports, but in business and in, in tech, everywhere else. The people that are doing the best have developed an audience around their personality and their fanhood and the things that they like and the things that they enjoy and the things that they believe in. So it's fascinating to see that you saw that probably, I guess, what, this was 2017, so a few years earlier. Did you know at the time that the audience you were building was going to be so valuable? And I don't mean that from a perspective of like, just go make money on them, but the actual people, right? Because I assume most of your audience is geared towards a younger generation, yeah. not only from Snapchat, but at your age when you're making the content. Did you realize that was going to be important at the time or were you just creating and that's kind of how it ended up? I don't know if I recognized how important it would be, but the one thing I knew from day one was the level of engagement matched any other audience in the sports media world. And I always joke around, like we could send more people than ESPN could even on their homepage because of how engaged we were. The reason I started this was because I loved First Take. I thought Stephen A and Skip were hilarious, but I wanted to debate against Stephen A. And the intent of social media, I thought, 
was for me to tweet at him and maybe he'd respond back and we go. And that's just gave him another big platform. So what I've always recognized was like, I'm just another average Joe who loves sports. Maybe I know a little more than the average person, but I love hearing others' opinions. I love debating back and forth. And Snapchat actually gave us a unique ability to engage one-to-one versus Instagram comment section, which is so hard to kind of rival through. Twitter replies, you know, I'm sure how hectic they get. Snap actually isolated a bit, which created a really cool environment. So have responded 100,000 plus messages over the past few years. That's amazing. Yeah, because I think people underestimate the power of that when you're initially starting out is just literally responding to everyone. And I try to do it to a point, but then you get to this other intersection where it's just really, really difficult to do. And people get angry, they get mad and they say, hey, I know you saw this. And, and the reality is you probably didn't, but it's just difficult to manage. But I'm interested to hear how how you built that audience on Snapchat, right? I don't use the platform enough to know the intricacies of like actually how to do it. But scaling zero to over a million is obviously extremely difficult, regardless of kind of what abilities Snapchat had for you to directly interact with people. So was there any inflection points or was there a process that you followed? Just talk me through kind of how you actually built the audience. Yeah, so we are technically like grandfathered in to being the largest sports Snapchat account because the algorithm has completely shifted. One day, Evan Spiegel was on a flight and he completely changed the outlook of the app. So On the left side is where you interact with your friends. The main slide is obviously the camera. And the right side of the app, it used to just be content. And it would be your friends' stories. It would be random people's stories. It was a true explore page. Now it shifted so it is only your friends are at the top, but then it's two pieces of explorable content. There are shows that they have and then any verified personalities. So if you started a page today, you couldn't organically grow. Back in the day, what we would do is we would get shout outs from bigger accounts. There were these 16 year old kids on Kick Messenger, if you've ever heard of it. Most people haven't. It's like group me, but it's a different form. K-I-K, right? Yeah, K-I-K. And you'd pay them a hundred bucks. They'd shout you out. They had no clue how valuable their stuff was. So they would shout you out to their 100,000 followers. We'd gain a thousand followers. And I'd take those thousand, I'd sell a t-shirt ad back to the company that I had been building, similar concept, and just take that money, duplicate it, And eventually, if you reached what was effectively like 100,000 followers, then you ended up on that explore page. And we were the biggest sports one. And so it kind of snowballed into that. And so now they shut that off completely. So we kind of have our own followers that, you know, are always going to be subscribed to us. And that's why I say like we're grandfathered into that because the algorithm has completely shifted. And does that make it harder for you to grow now also too? Or have you reached a point where it's not as necessary, I guess, with 1.2 or whatever you have? Yeah, it definitely is very tough for us to find new followers, which is okay. And we've seen the pros and cons of being the top on one platform, but lacking on others. So we just need to put more attention building out the rest of the ecosystem. If Snap goes away tomorrow, right? That's a huge pillar of the business. It's like anyone else's business. Everyone, you know, I think is relying on someone to stay afloat. So yeah, it's definitely stunted our growth on that platform, but we've been able to kind of suffice in in other ways. Dude, if you're paying, I'm not a, I don't typically do public math. So, so give me a, a break <laughs> here, but if you're paying a hundred dollars and you're getting a thousand subscribers, that's 10 cents per follower or subscriber, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. That's pretty good. I feel like yeah. you would just keep doing that until you can't do it anymore. <laughs> 
And that's what I was doing. I was paying. And then obviously, you know, the math on it shifted. It became yeah. more expensive. I'm a kid in New York City working for Action Network. I only had so many extra dollars <laughs> at that point. Yeah, I think if if I could go back, I'd probably just take like venture money for a hundred grand and we'd probably have 10 million followers. The funniest part though was those kids in Kick because they had funny pages, they had food, they had animal, everything. They said, hey, like just so you know, we'll do this for you, but no one wants to follow like a sports page on Snapchat. And I was like, I don't know about that. There's a lot of sports fans. So that was actually part of no one else tried. So it kind of made it a little easier. Yeah, it's amazing. So you build the audience there. It sounds like it scaled up pretty quickly. I don't know, you know, over what time period it took to get to a million, but say it got there pretty quickly. Where do you go from there? Did you initially know that you needed to expand elsewhere or did you start doing other things like merch and other things like that? So I had a little bit of an experience in that kind of social influencing world just because I had been working with people like that and companies. But the biggest problem was no one wanted to spend on Snap. The first instinct is I'm not on Snapchat. The second one is your audience, I assume, is really young. They don't have spending power. So not only are we pitching this new brand, Snapback Sports, but we're pitching the platform. Like we had to convince people to just spend on that platform. So we took some tests and it was a lot of short term deals. And then eventually we could get a one month deal and then the natural progression of that. But a lot of it was advertising. We've done merch from time to time. We're relaunching merch because I like the merch business, but I like it as like an exclusive kind of feel versus doing wholesale, which I think like Barstool crushes and, and Pat McAfee does a great job. So we've played around and we know what works well on Snap and then what works well on other platforms. But now we obviously want to grow those other platforms too. How hard was it to convince the first few people to advertise on Snapchat? Impossible. And I was 21 also, right? And we didn't have a team. It's me sending cold outreach. And so we were delivering out the ass for these people. And so that was the only way to do it. So that's always been a policy for us. It's like over deliver. We just you know redid our deal with Underdog because we over delivered. Even then, they took a chance on us. They took a year long deal. But obviously, like they still had hesitations. You know, that's an 18 plus application, but it went all right. Yeah. And to the market has changed, I think, also right now, these influencer deals, not only influencer, but you see them everywhere from super big influencers to very, very small influencers. People are much more comfortable with them. I did a call with the CEO of Cuts, Stephen Borelli, the Cuts t-shirt company the other day, and kind of a random mention, but he told me that his business basically, it's a big company now, I believe a couple hundred million dollar valuation. And he said that they exclusively basically grew on micro influencers. He's like, we literally dished out as many small deals as possible. You see what works and then maybe you scale up the deal from there. But to your point, a lot of small influencers are looking to prove their worth, right? And it's good for them in a, in a case because one, they get some case studies and then you're able to go pitch it to other brands and say, hey, look how well we did. But it's great for the brand because most of the time they're doing affiliate deals where they're getting a percentage of sales and it's only upside for the brand. Yeah, that's been a huge learning. And now we've gotten to the point where we're lucky enough to do content deals, but we're still a huge believer in delivering. So we do a lot of hybrid where it's CPA or there's some incentive that's going to have us committed to actually delivering because every deal we've ever done, we've rebooked, you know, when we wanted to, which I think just speaks to our audience. And that's why I spend that amount of time, you know, answering messages, right? You do eight a day. It doesn't feel like much, but over five years, if you answer one message from a fan, you got them for life and they will do and continue to support. And so over five years, that's been built up so much. 
So how big is the business today? You don't have to tell me revenue or anything like that, but just from like a size and a scale perspective, just so people have an understanding of what exactly we're talking about. Yeah, we are, we're probably at like our biggest inflection point. So we locked up our deal with Underdog, which is huge. We've got the big surprise coming that we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, we're relaunching merch and now our next goal is to scale up. And how are we going to do that? I want to go with a model that essentially gives creators an opportunity to create. But a lot of these smaller creators, micro creators, they're like right there on the precipice, but they're also not necessarily worth like a entry level salary, right? They're not going to make 70 grand a year, whatever it may be, just doing their stuff. So can we give them a combo? Can we give them the freedom to create? We can have them in our ad network but also do work for the greater big of snapback sports. I think Barstool kind of did it that way, except they didn't start with the talent. They just started with people and made them into talent. So we want to kind of reverse that. So looking right now, like how do you manage all those different types of creators where their goal obviously become huge and grow? Morning Brew is doing a fantastic job of this in the business world. So we want to kind of replicate that. And that's going to be our next big step here. Gotcha. And what does a normal day look like for you? Is it like all creating content or is it more the business side stuff now too? Yeah, I'm a content creator second. I am a CEO or a business person first. We've also got my man who was my manager. Now he's the co-founder of Snapback Agency, which reps digital creators. He's running our partnerships revenue. You know, at a startup, you got to do everything. And so I'm, I'm answering messages still today and then I'm on meetings with our biggest partners, but it's it's completely depends on day to day, right? This interview or this conversation rather is content. And then in an hour, we'll have a different meeting for NFTs and we'll have another meeting and then I'll go create content and do a Twitter spaces. And so it's all over the place. It's definitely a dual role. Do you ever think about the highs and lows and how you deal with it, right? I think one of the most difficult parts is people don't understand how hard content creation is. And they think most content creators are just kind of fooling around on the internet all day and messing with their phones. And if you're a good content creator and you do it not only at a high quality, but at a high quantity, it's very, very, very difficult. And it takes a lot of hours. But with that, there's also a lot of highs and lows, right? Like I'm sure you've gotten shout outs by big name athletes. I'm sure you've been on ESPN or something like that, right? Where you get these these big moments where you're like, holy shit, I yeah. never would have thought that would happen. And then the next day you're getting called out by a fan or someone else saying you did something really stupid. One, do you feel that? And then two, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think I've become numb a little bit to it in the best way possible. Just anything I post about Lamar Jackson, like the messages that are targeted at me, not even at Lamar, are so intense that I think it's numbed me a little bit. But I've done a good job, in my opinion, of celebrating those wins because I still do think the intent was like, okay, maybe people will care about my opinion a little, but I just want to share and engage with others when it comes to this stuff. And so for that reason, like I just celebrate those, those wins when they come. So is Snapchat just as toxic as Twitter or is it less toxic? So that's one of Evan Spiegel's huge things was to create a safe environment. Like on their shows, there's no comment section. There's no upvoting or downvoting. So it limits a little bit of toxicity. And because it's kind of each person can comment to me but they can't like gang up in a comment section like, oh, Jack, your pick tonight sucked or your opinion sucks. So it's only them saying it. And I think without that mob mentality, it actually limits a lot of the toxicity. I think Instagram comment section 
is probably the most toxic because it's rewarded. Twitter is obviously toxic in its own ways with quotes. What do you mean it's rewarded? Okay, if you go to any LeBron post in the sports media world, it's like, oh, La Mickey, La Bubble, anything love, which I actually think is kind of funny. And, you know, people just start liking it. Bots will like it and it gets sent to the top of the thing. And then it's a whole mishmash of just back and forth replies. Oh, you're an idiot. Similar activity that's going on on Twitter. But I think it's more rewarded there. On Twitter, I wouldn't say it's as rewarded, but the mentality of people is definitely like, a, I want to get you, like I want to quote tweet you and make fun of you. I want to be in the replies and ratio you. So there's similar tendencies, but Snap is definitely the least. And I would say TikTok is generally a pretty positive environment. YouTube generally pretty positive from my experience. But Instagram comments and Twitter replies are definitely <laughs> the two uglier sides of social media. So I don't have the stats for everyone, but you just mentioned TikTok and it made me think about it. I literally have a screenshot on my computer of a stat that I saw earlier that I thought was one incredible, but kind of somewhat concerning, I guess, and just absolutely mind blowing, which was TikTok's engagement rates. So it says that it used to be around in 2018, the average user on TikTok spent about six or seven hours a month on the app. Now it's 26 hours a month they spend on the app. <laughs> That's more than Facebook, which is only 16, Instagram, which is eight, and WhatsApp, which is eight, right? So I'm assuming the other apps kind of fall within that pocket, but 26 hours per month. That means the average user is spending more than a day a month, more than 12 days a year using TikTok. That's absolutely insane. You've been on TikTok before, obviously. It makes sense. Like Their algorithm has been created to perfection, and it's now part of the brand's story. And now their live is a huge thing for them. They'll get into the live shopping, I'm sure, that market. They're doing stories now. It's just the algorithm, and it feels limitless. Like Part of it, I would imagine, is TikToks used to be like a 15, 30-second thing. Then they extended to a minute. Now it can be three minutes. But in everyone's head, it's like, okay, I'm going to watch 30 TikToks, but I'm only watching 10 seconds worth. So it's only X amount of minutes. Now you're watching a minute and a half, minute and a half, minute and a half, and you're watching a lot of longer form content. It doesn't surprise me. Time flies when you're on that app. Yeah, it's actually a pretty genius model because one, everyone knows that the, the short clips are super addictive, obviously. Our attention spans have collapsed really as a society and people are addicted to these smaller, shorter video clips. And then when you start to expand, that's where you get all the revenue, right? You know this better than anyone of like the short form stuff is really, really hard to monetize in some degree because there's just not enough to integrate ads. It's not as interactive with the audience and so forth. So if you can expand that, now we're talking about YouTube, right? And YouTube is a massive business. The thing that's interesting to me about TikTok too is it seems like they have an appetite to get into live sports which would be interesting. I don't know if they've actually, or what deals they've done. I know that they've shown some games. I don't know if they've committed long-term to anything. But when you think about just being the platform of entertainment, regardless of pranks, regardless of kind of education, sports, whatever it is, like they're quickly becoming that for an entire generation, it feels like. Yeah, they almost feel like they're sneakily the biggest competitor to Amazon in a way. Like Amazon was going to be the, the giant who came into the sports media rights. But they don't have a ton of attention. Now they have an email list and they can hit you from a million different angles. But from an engagement standpoint, no one rivals TikTok. So it will be interesting. And you've got the biggest creators in the world now on TikTok. Like you said about short form content, that's why I didn't dive into TikTok early on 
was because I was like, how are people going to monetize this stuff? And we see a lot of big TikTok creators who can't develop outside of TikTok, which is a huge problem. And so trying to help them build their brand outside the platform so they can monetize is a major, major key. Would you rather have a YouTube account with 100,000 subscribers or a TikTok account with a million? YouTube. That's not even close. YouTube with 10,000 would almost rival that. And if you go on some of the biggest TikTokers accounts in the world, most of them understand that. So they have their YouTube link and people have 800,000 TikTok subscribers, 3,000 YouTube subscribers, right? That kind of goes to show a lot. And now I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think the obvious answer is YouTube, you get the watch time, you get community posting, linking below all the factors that you would want on TikTok, but in greater depth. I agree. I had a feeling you were going to say YouTube, and I was trying to pick a number that was basically high enough to where it didn't sound absurd, but would make you consider. But now you threw out 10,000, like I wasn't even close to making you consider. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 10,000 would be close. At that point, probably go with TikTok. And I don't want to sound like I'm talking down on TikTok. There's just certain parts of the business that YouTube is so much better at. And TikTok's going to build these things. That's a huge thing. Like for Snapchat, right? Linking didn't come for a very long time. Shows didn't come for a very long time. So these things will be built. But there's scenarios where creators' lifelines are only so long. And sometimes those tools don't get built in time. Well, I think part of it too is it opened your eyes to the need to expand beyond just one channel, right? I talk about this all the time, but when I first started on Twitter, immediately, like within the first week or two, it was like, hey, let's get a newsletter going, right? Something that you own and another distribution channel. And that's a natural progression, right? To filter people down from Twitter, which has the ability to link things out and click through and so forth to a newsletter. And then from the newsletter, you're able to filter people down to podcast, you're able to filter them over to Instagram, you're able to filter them to YouTube and et cetera. But the reality is that it's just so much more valuable if you're able to parse people to different avenues. And someone I talk to a lot about this is Ian Borthwick, who runs Influencer Marketing. Yeah, he's the man at SeatGeek, right? And one of the things that I always remember he said was like, when we work with an influencer and we're paying them, if it's like a, a larger deal, it's much more important for me. And one of the first things he said that he checks is to make sure that their audience was transported across multiple platforms. And that's not because he thinks that the influencer is going to get cut off from Twitter or cut off from TikTok or cut off from Instagram. It's because that means that their followers and their subscribers and their audience like them that much more, right? They're willing to follow them across different platforms. So he says that's like a big thing for him is being able to see that people have transitioned audience to different platforms and something I thought was super interesting. It's the biggest key. And I've been following Ian for years because he's one of those that just gets it. I talk a lot about like auditing social profiles. Like I could go look at your stuff and tell you like, okay, are your followers real? Sure. You could probably run those tests, but like, will you engage? Will your followers actually connect and will they click? And so by auditing like each profile, I totally agree. It's so so important. How much are these accounts? Have you ever heard of any of these accounts selling for like a ridiculous amount? Yeah. Wave TV, they kind of acquired a bunch of accounts. Obviously, House of Highlights got acquired by Bleacher Report. That was definitely early. I'm sure Omar could be, not that he's not doing great today, but if he had held on for a little longer. But this is something we go through all the time, which is like, sure, we could scale, we can do all these things. But a lot of these sports media companies, they have the resources. And for what we're trying to get to, 
could we just jumpstart our vision by joining them? So two years ago, when we were really just a Snapchat account, I'm sure we would have gotten a nice amount of money. But now that we're more of like a media business with more arms, more partnerships, talent involved, that kind of changes the complexion of acquiring an account versus a company. I just pulled it up while we're talking here because I remember reading it a few years ago on The Hustle and it was talking about meme accounts. So not even just Instagram accounts, but specifically meme accounts. And the highlight of the title was that Mark Cuban owns a meme account. He invested in one of these accounts. I think it's MBA memes or something else like that. So he he obviously believes in it. But then they were talking about Warner Music Group. So Warner Music Group paid $85 million for what they called one of the internet's most successful meme factories, IMGN Media, which was, yeah, it was Daquan. Daquan. Yeah, it was just it was Daquan, Daquan, actually. No, there's a couple others. But the main account was Daquan. It had 15 million followers at the time when they paid for it. $85 million. They paid for a few of them, but yeah. the main asset was Daquan. It was started by an anonymous high schooler. Anonymous high schooler in 2014. Yeah, they got ripped off. And I'll, I'll let you go in one second. But what <laughs> they say in here is they talk about what Warner Music Group is using it for. They basically have these numbers that if you do a well-placed meme and it hits, the streaming numbers tell them that it increases by 122% to 600%. Basically, someone makes a song, they put it in a meme, and they put it on the page. If that goes viral, the streaming numbers will increase anywhere from about 120% to 600%. So they're poning up $85 million for Daquan. You think they got ripped off? Ripped off. In regard of they were worth much more than that, but like I was mentioning earlier, Daquan couldn't go create an entire catalog of Netflix shows to then create memes about, right? So by them being acquired and then shifting into an ecosystem that already had those assets, that's where it's like the creator versus the business. How do you even measure the value? But think about Formula One. It wasn't done by memes, but what that documentary did to the sport, that documentary is probably worth a billion dollars to the sport of Formula One. And so we've seen meme accounts do that too. I think of Tiger King, that one was all led by memes. What was the show where they killed everyone? The Asian show? Squid Games? It was, yeah, Squid Games. Like All those things are led by memes and GIFs and conversation on social. And what people don't realize is it's all being started by those meme accounts. Yeah. I mean, the internet is undefeated, right? So if you can dominate the internet for a time period, then you're going to be doing pretty well. Especially, I think a lot of it about with sports betting companies, right? Because it's an industry similar to crypto or something else where the customer acquisition cost is so high that you have to find really unique ways to get them cheaper. So there's certainly companies that have done this well, but if you're just going to go out and you're running TV ads and you're running these kind of Facebook ads or these Twitter ads or Instagram ads, like that's a losing game. And you're going to be in a situation where like you just can't afford to keep up or beat any of these bigger names. And now we're in a world where there's so many of these companies, like literally I get an email once every two days or once every three days from someone who's raising money to go start a sports betting company. And they all try to pitch some unique angle, right? We're a web three company. We're a metaverse company. We have this kind of unique asset that's going to make us different. But the reality is it's all a customer acquisition game. You know what I mean? The tech is very, very, very similar across every single platform there is. So it's all a brand and image. And then how cheaply can you acquire customers? So I think what we're actually going to see is, and we've already seen it to some degree is like, not only are people going to go hire content creators. So like, I mean, DraftKings and FanDuel, they're, they're certainly licensing some shows and doing sponsorships, but they're also just hiring content creators to make podcasts to do all these things. Mike Rabel was on the podcast the other day, the CEO and co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. And we were talking through and it's like, 
they're eventually just going to buy a league, right? Like imagine if Alex Sherman wrote about this the other day for CNBC, but it's something that we've all probably talked about to some degree, which is if Disney, instead of doing the deal with the UFC to stream the fights, just bought the UFC. They would have been 10 times better off, 50 times better off, right? And sure, maybe there's a, a debate to be had there whether it's good for the brand or not. But ultimately, like these assets provide so much more value than just memes or just content or whatever. And I'm assuming that, I mean, you're obviously betting on this, right? You're, you're operating a company that's kind of at the intersection of all this. Absolutely. The next path forward is consolidation, like you were mentioning. There's no reason why FanDuel or DraftKings should be competing with these smaller companies. And there's no chance that the smaller companies are going to spend 400 or 1,000 versus BetMGM and all of them. So they'll consolidate together. And then it'll be, like you said, someone has to, it's not the one value prop. They have to build an insanely valuable brand so they can acquire customers for cheap. And then the fun part is when the crypto books come and everything gets decentralized. That, you know, could that be in 100 years or in two years? I don't know. But that's what's going to disrupt the entire industry. So consolidation first, brand second, and then where does crypto fall into this? That's going to be so fun. All right. I promise we're going to get to the announcement, but I got a couple more <laughs> questions. What's going on with NFTs? I know that you are big into it. I know that you ventured from everything from kind of the art-based stuff to the utility-based stuff to things like NBA Top Shot and so forth. I get a lot of questions about NFTs in general. And, and to be honest, like as someone who has been, I don't want to say in crypto, but interested curiously in Bitcoin for a long time, I think I get it to a degree and I certainly see a value in some stuff, but it also seems very crowded, right? And it seems like there's a lot of stuff right now that doesn't make a lot of sense. I tweeted about it the other day and there's, there's people that hate NFTs, right? So they loved it. I don't know if you saw this, but Jack Dorsey's first tweet sold as an NFT, right? And he sold it last year. He sold it for $2.9 million, called 3 million bucks. He immediately converted it to about 50 Bitcoin and sent the 50 Bitcoin to a charity in Africa for COVID-19 relief. So Jack's like, hey, my hands are dusted clean. I'm not involved in this. I monetized the tweet. Look at this idiot. Like I'm sending it right. in Bitcoin. <laughs> and then this guy, he, I don't want to say his name because you know it is what it is, but he held on to it for about a year now, I believe. And then he went to go sell it. He thought he was going to get 49 or 50 million or something like that. And the top bid was $280 after a week. So very, very, very far off from what he expected. Maybe he ends up holding on to it and, and sells it at some other point. But where do you just see this going, right? I'm sure you have this conversation all the time of like, what is worthwhile? What's not worthwhile? Just give me your thoughts on like the overall state of where we're at today. Yeah, I think we're in a really good spot where we are starting to kind of shed away the profile picture projects, as I'll call them, where they hold no utility, they hold no value, there really is no reason that they were an NFT in the first place. What got me most excited about NFTs was the technology behind it. And the technology is still very far away from execution. So I was trading sports cards, physical cards during the NBA bubble, I bought Michael Porter Jr. cards for 20 bucks a pop. And he played for those two weeks of regular season, he went off, his cards 5x. And when I'm ready to sell them, I got to take a picture, put them on eBay, ship them out. And by the time they got to the buyer, they canceled the order because they were back down to $20 because he was back on the bench in the playoffs. So I was like, there's got to be a better option. Top Shot actually timed up perfectly for that. And I live on digital. The company is built in digital. I've been in crypto. So that's what started was the NBA Top Shot. 
I didn't even know I was on a blockchain. Then you start to learn about the value in that and the transactions and all that good stuff. So that's what got me into NFTs. And then you kind of explore from there. The reason I never bought a board ape, why I still think like they haven't delivered any utility is because when people say, oh, look what they've done. Well, they airdropped you some stuff that was worth a lot of money, but only the market is determining that. So I still to this day question, you know, how good is a board ape NFT? Could it end up at zero? I genuinely believe yes. Now they're building actual structure. They're building a business around it and they're going to use the tech of the blockchain and NFTs. But NFTs should be like, why isn't my driver's license an NFT? You could verify it that way. I don't have to carry it around in my stupid wallet. And you know you can check it at the door of the bar. That's a better use case for an NFT than a profile picture. Now, what did NFTs show us about the world? It showed us that digital identities are very important. If my profile picture is a picture of me in a Ravens jersey, you come to my profile, it screams, okay, maybe he's from Baltimore, maybe he likes crab cakes. He definitely likes the Ravens, but it's signaling. And we're always signaling online. That's what a blue check mark is. That's what your username is. It's what you post is. And so profile pictures were just another form of signaling. And then they just went out of control. They became the next hot thing. And so do I think you know an ether rock should be worth a million dollars? There's an argument that a picture of a rock is the meme of the internet. We just talked about the importance of memes. And it's the first thing on the internet. And it's an incredible collectible. And then there's an argument that it's the dumbest thing you've ever seen in your life. It's the biggest waste of money. And I can't say either way, but I think I take a step back and I at least recognize that there are some people who collect stupid stuff or smart stuff, depending on who you ask. But NFTs right now are going through. They went from profile pictures. Now people are going to deliver utility. What's the next phase? It's probably the metaverse. Have you ever thrown on an Oculus headset before? Yeah, my fiance, she plays golf in it all the time and ping pong. It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah. But I'm not wearing that thing in my head for three hours, right? But it's a way better viewing experience. And could I see like the way I watch Ravens game, because my family's all over the country, we're texting. Could I see us throwing on Oculus headsets and we're sitting on the couch engaging? Like, absolutely, but not with the tech. And so I think NFTs are at the same spot. We just have time. And that's why it always gets compared to the early days of the internet. Who envisioned us doing a podcast talking about all this crazy stuff 20 years ago? It was just going on Google or AOL, whatever it may be. Dude, think about this. So we're recording this on, what's today? Thursday, right? It's going to get released on Saturday. Jerry Jones this week signed, the Cowboys signed a crypto partnership with blockchain.com. When Jerry Jones bought the Cowboys, the internet literally like didn't exist. Like maybe it (laughs) had been founded, but no one was using it yet. Right. So I think he bought the team in like 1980 or whatever it was. So the internet like literally wasn't a thing. And he's owned the team for however many decades now. And he's signing crypto partnerships, right? So this stuff, it seems like it happens slow to a degree. But when you zoom out, like a lot of it's happening really fast. Crypto in general has a couple hundred million, a few hundred million users at this point. You obviously have to get to a point where you're you're in the billions, right? If you're scaling towards the same size as the internet. But I think when you overlay those charts, and I've seen them before, they're very similar. We're, we're certainly scaling on that point. And then it just gets down to a point of like, what is useful, what has utility, what is worth something, et cetera. But it's it's difficult to see, like, I don't know if you saw the Yuga Labs financials. Their pitch deck got leaked when they were raising money. 
And they raised $450 million at a $4 billion valuation. Yeah. So people don't know Yuga Labs created Bored Apes, right? What you were just talking about. They had like $140 million in revenue that year of last year. And they did like $130 million in profit. <laughs> Literally, it was like 90, over 90% profit margins, 95% profit margins. And I think they only had like 10 or 15 employees too. So a monster business from the perspective of like how much capital they were able to raise so quickly. And then it's just like, all right, is this sustainable? Can we do it again? Can we build another ecosystem around this? And I think a lot of that is to be determined, but I, I certainly agree with you in the aspect of like, yeah, sure. We probably moved past the point where people are paying you know, one, two, three, four, five million dollars for a tweet and a profile picture. <laughs> but since we're talking sports so much, like one of my core things is that this is perfect for athletes. You know what I mean? They they have the ability to create really cool utility. Like I don't know if you've seen Steph Curry's NFT. And again, like I don't have a vested interest in this at all. I don't even own it. I don't care if you buy it. I don't care if anyone else buys it. Something you have to state nowadays or you're quote unquote, pumping your bag. Yeah, like literally, yeah. I don't own it. Go buy it. Don't buy it. I don't, I really <laughs> couldn't care less. But Steph Curry, I thought his was at least interesting to the degree of they're offering really cool utility, right? So if you buy his NFT, then you're entered in all these competitions. And for his birthday, they literally flew people out to California to have like a cake with him and to shoot basketball with them on the Golden State Warriors floor. Like that's insane utility. You know what I mean? The ability to offer that to someone and maybe it's worth it for someone and maybe it's not worth it for someone. And I don't know how many he ended up selling, but I can assure you there's at least a few thousand people that are interested in that, right? Out of his whole entire global fan base of millions of people. So you start to get to this point of like, it's really just a membership club to some degree when you're talking about athletes and it's on the blockchain and sure you can verify who owns it, et cetera. And sure, maybe you can get there with a private company and a database, but ultimately, the ability for athletes to connect with their audience is, is certainly impactful. I just think that there's probably been so many things now where people look at it in a negative light when in reality, like it's really just a fan club. And if you tone it down to that, I think a lot more people would probably be open to it. Yeah. The one thing that I've learned, the difference, because I always say whenever someone launches something, Forbes just launched an NFT. Does this need to be an NFT? And like you said, Steph could have created a database. They could set up through Shopify and you buy a $1,000 t-shirt, you're in the club. What it does though, NFTs, it at least gives liquidity. And that's something that's unique to that. But my perfect example for NFTs, the Packers stock, right? They just did a whole another stock raise, $40 million to the stadium. Why did I buy shares? I did as a joke to almost mock the Packers and the NFL, but why would you spend $250 for a certificate? If that was an NFT, you could have liquidity on one side, so you could get out of that, and they could easily have you come to the stadium for a game, for a signing. They could send you a t-shirt because they know who owns the stock in the company versus some crazy database. So that is what ownership looks like in the future, is NFTs, in my opinion, utilizing the blockchain how it's going to play out, who's going to win. That If I knew, I wouldn't be here. I'd be raising money to invest it all in who's going to win. Like I just don't know who wins. That's the biggest thing. Well, so I had Jack Grotzinger, who is the CEO of SeatGeek on the podcast, and he told me that he thinks between 80 to 100% of tickets in sports will be NFTs, right? And it's obviously a use case. And the one that I point out as an example is the master's. And people want to give me a shit, sure, go ahead. Masters obviously doesn't care about revenue. They don't care about maximizing revenue. They would go sell a TV deal instead of $0, they'd go get $100 million for it. So that's not the case. 
But when you think about it in context of how much they're losing in revenue versus what they could maintain through tickets. So you do the raffle. It's $150, $250, $300, whatever it ends up being. And then those tickets are immediately sold. Like some literally the next day are sold on the secondary market for $1,000, $2,000, $3,000, $4,000. And they don't capture any of that upside. Every time the ticket changes hands, they don't know. They're not able to contact any of these people because they don't know the ownership anymore, right? They're contacting the wrong people. They're not able to connect with them in any other meaningful way because, again, they don't know who owns it anymore. And they're certainly missing that two and a half or three or four or 5% royalty that they could be getting on every time the ticket changes hands. One, it's also not secure. You could buy fake tickets, et cetera. So I think we're going to get to a point where that's like an obvious use case and we'll see kind of what companies roll it out first. But I agree, like there's some very, very obvious things that the technology can be used for. And then there's some things where you're just like, you know what, this literally makes no sense at all. This is a total scam. Kind of avoid this at all costs. And I would put tweets probably under that bucket. <laughs> yeah. I think the ticket is a perfect example. And what I would say, why I'm so bullish on Dapper Labs, not that my portfolio is going to go up, not the moment you buy on NBA Top Shot will, but they're going to onboard the most amount of people into crypto because you don't know so if the Masters launches that, right, what are you going to do? You're going to get 62-year-old man to get Ethereum from Coinbase, get it onto OpenSea. No, we still need those platforms to where they can just buy it with a credit card. They don't even know they're dealing with an NFT, but we know the value of an NFT is that the security, you're buying the actual ticket, they can track who owns it. So there's still obviously a ton of room for innovation in that regard. And when you think about it, right, the biggest product successes in the world are typically they involve two things, right? There's usually this mass adoption or interest, we'll call it mass interest from a bunch of people. And the products are typically not very good at first. And then we get good products and that like hyper gross everything, right? It, it thrusts you 10 years forward because there's already this mass appeal. So you want to look for things from an investing perspective that have really shitty products that people are still really interested in, yep. right? And to be quite frank, like I think that's what a lot of crypto is right now. You mentioned Top Shot and like so rare is another example. They're incredible for the space, even though like hardcore Bitcoiners, which I think is stupid, even if you only own Bitcoin, like there's no reason to only talk about Bitcoin and shame people that, that talk about other things. But They'll give them shit. And I'm like, do you guys realize that they're literally onboarding millions of people to crypto right now? Like they're putting in their credit card and they're buying crypto and it's held in this wallet and they have absolutely no idea in most cases, in some cases at least, that they're doing that. And that's a really important and powerful thing. And we're going to get to this point now. Jack Mollers, who's the CEO of Strike, announced at the Bitcoin conference that they're going to be using the Lightning Network Rails, right? So they're literally, you swipe with your credit card. It gets converted to Bitcoin on the back end, sent across the bank, converted again, right? Or to the end user. And you don't even know that you're using Bitcoin in most cases. You're using US dollars. The other side receives US dollars, but you're using the rail. So it happens instantaneously, essentially for free. Settlement time is T plus zero instead of T plus two or T plus three. You're not taking out any debt because that's really what that is, right? When you're exchanging the money and taking a loan and it happens on Bitcoin. So I think like there's going to be a bunch of products built like that where this market expands a ton. And I think NFTs are probably going to come out of this as like a huge winner, not necessarily from the degree of like, hey, all the assets are worth a ton of money, but winner as a big contributor to the ecosystem. 100%. All right. Now it's time to make the announcement. I've dragged you out long enough. We're <laughs> quite a while into this podcast and we haven't even talked about it yet. But I'll let you explain it. But the announcement is you guys are opening Snapback Sports and now you're going to call it Snapback Kitchen, which is a kitchen. It's going to be across the country where 
users or consumers are going to be able to order from mobile apps and get your food. So you're essentially opening up a food delivery service similar to what Mr. Beast did with Beast Burger or something like that. But you told me beforehand you're going to be in, I believe, 15 states and 40 different locations to start, and then you'll scale it from there. And I think you guys are taking a really unique approach because this isn't just, hey, we're opening a brand under our name, or we're going to go try to sell food. But there's a few different caveats and a few different points of nuance to this that make it really cool. So I'll stop talking there and butchering the, the pitch, <laughs> and I'll let you explain exactly what Snapback Kitchen is. No, I think you did an incredible job of laying it out. And it took me probably a month to even understand how everything happens. Just like we were talking about with NFTs, you don't really need to know how it happens. Just know you can go to snapbackkitchen.com or Uber Eats or Grubhub and order the food. So what's unique about this is one, just our belief in that our followers would rather order from us than they would. Chick-fil-A is a great brand. So I don't know if we're quite there yet, but from some other chicken tender, mac and cheese, french fries, that'll be V1 of our menu. Then what gets really fun is our creativity. So Popchu is the company behind it all. They're the ones that make this happen. Incredible startup. They've done a couple other food brands, obviously Bitcoin Pizza, they were behind. And so now with Snapback Kitchen, we've got a reward system. And so instead of going into your local restaurant, you order 10 times, you get a free ice cream. Now you order through us, through the NBA playoffs, you get a chance to come to the finals and you'll be in a video with me. We'll create content. It'll be a great time. And that's just what we can do that I don't think a lot of local spots can do just because they don't have the content engine or the distribution that we have. Now, what's really fun is it's also a win-win for the restaurant. The restaurant now gets two things. One, they get increased revenue. So a restaurant that's already running now takes on our menu. It's a virtual restaurant. It's our branding and everything, but it's out of their kitchen with our ingredients. They get added revenue. They still take their normal cut. And because this local restaurant only has one location, we have 40. So now we're sourcing them ingredients cheaper that they can use for their normal restaurant. So like there's a restaurant in New Jersey whose revenue doubled, not from ours, but from Pop True's first one with wing season. And that's just like an incredible story. So the win-win is rare in the business world. Normally there's a give and a take, but I'm really excited about that. And then finally, what's going to be cool is giving athletes an opportunity to showcase their brand. Maybe they don't have the power or the influence to launch whoever it may be, LeBron James Kitchen. He probably does, but there's a whole list of athletes who don't. But would their biggest fans order a meal? Would their hometown support them? Absolutely. So that and then we're going to dedicate a huge budget to NIL athletes to give them an opportunity to represent. And the difference is, you know, as we've talked about it throughout this podcast is ownership over a business. Wendy's, we've worked with them before. They're amazing. But you kind of always got to wait for their check. You got to do content for them. Now we get to do our own stuff and own this business and create from it. And we've just seen the value in doing that across others. And I think food, time sports, Super Bowl parties, tailgates, Sundays on the couch, whatever it may be, is just such an obvious tie-in. Do you think that this will become more popular? I think that we've already seen a few people certainly do it and a few different brands do it, but I don't think we've reached that size where it's like a no-brainer for a lot of people. Do you think that we'll get there at some point? Yes, this is the next really, really exciting tool in the creator economy. And I talked about that earlier, like Patreon came along. That was huge for a lot of creators. They could now sell premium content and gate it, right, for their biggest fans and make money off of it. So they didn't have to 
rely on YouTube views or you're not getting paid on Instagram Reels views, et cetera. So what tools in the creator economy are being built? And one thing that I love, because merch is huge for creators and businesses, but you have to sell merch. No one technically ever needs another t-shirt, but everyone's eating multiple times a day. And I think that genuine, hey, we're not pushing chicken tenders down your throat, <laughs> but if you're going to eat, like try our food. If you think it's good, become a longtime customer and it's fun and you'll be rewarded for it. Are you going to be on Uber Eats? We'll be on Uber Eats. We'll be on Grubhub, Seamless, Caviar, all the apps. But if you go straight to snapbackkitchen.com, you can order online delivery and like they'll pick one. Yeah, they'll pick one of them and make sure it shows up at your door. I'm asking because I don't know if anyone from Uber Eats listens to this podcast, but I need a discount code because I'm the number one customer by far in the <laughs> entire country. Guaranteed. I'm definitely up there. We we've got you a code, so you'll be able to get some snapback kitchen, but I agree. Uber Eats does need to kick back some credit for us being some of their biggest supporters. I love it, man. I love it. All right. So this goes live on Saturday, right? When, when this podcast is going to drop. What are you thinking for version two? I guess we'll talk of the menu. Has that been discussed yet? So we have chicken fingers, mac and cheese, french fries, stuff like that. What are we doing next? So next up, the one thing I didn't think about going into it was delivery. Like I was just like, I'm going to create this awesome menu. It's going to be super stylized. Okay, well, we got to think about scale, but also what delivers well. And so what are people looking for on delivery was another factor. So that's how we landed on chicken tenders, fries, mac and cheese. It's also a great food for sports. And we'll add grilled chicken maybe for a healthier option. That'll be like what? Wings? Wings, potentially. I want to do hot dogs. I love hot dogs. The feedback I've gotten is like, who goes on delivery and orders a hot dog? So we'll see. We'll test. And that's the beauty is like you can kind of launch these things. The process is actually very intensive. And we went into the taste kitchen. We test all different chicken tender skews and products. We taste test like five different variations of a specific sauce. So it's highly curated. And I want to mention this one thing because I think it's important. Travis Scott, you remember what he did with McDonald's and their big meal. He made them $300 million and he got a big check, probably six figure, maybe seven, low seven figure, but it became a TikTok trend. It became everything. And so if Travis Scott had done this, you know, we're talking about a crazy food business that he could own versus that one-off check. So that's why Pop Chu kind of created this. That's why we're a believer in ownership of the business. But V2, we also want to listen to the fans. What do they want? What do you find yourself ordering most on delivery? Is it healthy? in between or like straight garbage? I don't know who told you not to do hot dogs and I won't tell <laughs> you to do them or not do them, but I can confirm that I've never ordered a hot dog on okay. on delivery. <laughs> but that's not to say it won't do well and that's not to say that some people won't do that. I just, I've never done yeah. that. But I agree. I think this is like a, a very cool part of what we talk about from like an ownership perspective, right? Because if you use your Travis Scott example, not only did he make a smaller check than he probably should have relative to the value he created, but all the other value accrued to this chain, McDonald's, right? Which is a multi, multi-billion dollar corporation. He created a very, very, very small, call it 1% or less of the actual value that he created. And then the users didn't get any either. And in this case, you would be capturing more of that value, which in turn, you would reinvest into a lot of the user use cases. And then the other people are typically, I assume in most cases, smaller businesses that are localized or regional, and you're offering them the ability to earn more income 
as you mentioned before, with the wing example of the business that doubled their sales, right? So it's like this cool line that you're straddling of like helping the smaller businesses, but also giving your fans access to something that doesn't feel as corporate as maybe a McDonald's or a Wendy's or some partnership like that. Absolutely. That was the coolest part for me was especially coming out of COVID, you know how many of those small businesses, small restaurants got hit hard. And so just the fact that the companies they've worked with in the past have raised their revenues, I think is awesome. They're letting us do it. We're kind of allowing them to do it. And so it's a cool partnership. I love it, man. I'm going to have to order some myself. And then I, I commit to bringing you back on when you drop version two of the menu. And we'll talk through, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll do like a live review. We'll order the food and we'll, we'll sit here and talk through what's good, what's not good, et cetera. Love it. Love it. Thanks for coming on, man. We'll do it again soon. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.